Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Punch Kick Choke Chat. Uh, Sean is once again not here because he's successful. <laughs> he's he's an actor and he's doing a TV show, and we're really happy for him. But we obviously miss him and want him on the show, and he wants to be here. It really bothers him when he can't be here. Um, so if you've joined us, thanks for joining in live or on Zoom or YouTube, or if you're listening or watching it later on any of the podcast platforms, thanks so much. Um, tonight, we're really happy to be here with Master Adam Grogan. He's a sixth end in Taekwondo, uh, world-class breaker and martial artist. Um, if you do have questions for uh, for uh, Master Grogan, please put them down in the chat. Andre, I'll put that there for you. Um, and the first question for you right out of the, the gate, um, Adam, and we might go around the horn on this is I read your website today, which I thought was really nice, really well put together website. And it said on there that you opened your school with the goal of changing the way that the capital region looked at martial arts. I'm just curious about that. How are they looking at martial arts and what were you going to do that was different than what was in your region? So, um, when I was opening my school, I had a mentor, a grandmaster in the area, Grandmaster Nagara, for anybody who knows I'm shouting out. And he is kind of the guy that a lot of people looked up to that might not have been his lineage, but kind of, there's a lot of Taekwondo schools in my area, tons of Taekwondo schools. And some of them were franchised and some of them were very, everybody was very closed in the late 90s, early 2000s. Everything was very closed. And he was kind of for a lot of people that had branched out of their school to start their own, that kind of were breaking their lineage because they weren't at their school anymore. And sometimes that was a positive change and, and looked at as growth, but sometimes it was looked at poorly by leaving. He kind of took in all of those multiple school owners of my generation, to kind of give them a path to keep ranking and, and to have a lineage in that way. And he used to always say that this area, the capital region of New York is where I am, Albany, New York, but the capital region is probably a, an hour north, south, east, west, maybe 45 minutes. It's a pretty big area. That It's very rich in martial arts. And it's true because there is over 100 martial arts schools in the capital region, over 100. And early 2000s, when I opened my school, nobody really mingled. There was cliques. A couple schools here would mingle, a couple schools there. But it was really secluded, isolated, kind of in a bubble. And there was a lot to be learned by sharing with each other. And I kind of wanted to do that a little bit. Um, one of the first things I did when I opened my school is my lineage myself is pretty diverse. I have mainly Taekwondo. Taekwondo is my main style, but I dabbled in a lot of other styles. I feel like martial arts is like college. You have a major, you have a minor, you got lots of electives. You kind of focus on something. You don't want to be a jack of all trade master and nuns so you need something to to hone in on as your main thing but you want to learn and dabble with other things i like the idea of trying a style knowing what it's about saying that's great it's not for me but now i know what you do and i respect what you do because i've seen what you do rather than judging it from not being a part of it so i like to have the same idea for my students and everybody not every style is for every person but the more we participate or check out or are exposed to other styles, the more we could see the beauty of those styles, the benefits, positive, negatives, and have a better standpoint of understanding of them as opposed to being ignorant about them and just assuming. I came from a very Taekwondo-centric world. And I remember my instructor, 
had a t-shirt that we thought was the coolest thing when we were kids and stupid. And it said, karate is for people that can't do Taekwondo. And as a Taekwondo practitioner, that was a cool shirt. And I forgot that I had done karate before I did Taekwondo. And that was an insult to me. And sure, I mean, we all pride in our style, but it's the mentality that was big here is that the Taekwondo folks thought what they did was best. The karate folks thought what they did was best. But there's awesomeness and beauty in all of it. When I opened my school, long story short, I brought in other instructors from my life of other styles that I felt weren't cannibalistic. And I was one of the first schools in my area to be one central location with different styles training. So that was kind of the start of it is, yeah, maybe a lot of people didn't cross train, but if you were leaving Taekwondo class, you might catch a little bit of the Wushu class going on and vice versa. So kind of being exposed to each other. And now almost 20 years later, I still have different styles in my building to kind of build with that. But I've done a lot of other stuff along with it to take a breath and give you a chance to respond to all that. That's awesome. What I'm going to do, um, uh, Sensei Grogan, is I'm going to ask Sensei Suino and Sensei Legacy about that because mm-hmm. all of us on this call are actually school owners. Mm-hmm. So the question that I'm going to ask them is basically that. Like when you started your school, what was what were your, what was your thought? Why did you want to start a school? Um, why did you want to teach martial arts? And what were you hoping that you were bringing um, to the martial arts community? And Sensei, for you, I know, Sensei Legacy, I know that was like in the 70s. So it's like, it might be really interesting to hear that from your perspective, because it's generationally much farther back for most of us watching this. You asking me now? Yes, Sensei. Yeah, like when you started your school, what were you hoping to do? And like... It was... uh... I didn't. I don't think I started like most people. Uh, our sensei um, retired, and he just walked away. And so um, I got a phone call from John Pearson, and he said, "I've been talking to all the students, and they said that they would all come back if you um, decided to come and teach at the club." So uh, at that point, in the martial arts, at least in my dojo. Um, martial arts was just uh, just taking root. Um, I know at my school I learned um, Gojiru, Chitoryu, Kung Fu, etc. So my aim was to break my school down to a style to have that root, that root style, like you were saying. And uh, my choice was Shorin. And then now, uh, that's basically what I did was I just took everybody out of being all over the place into one recognized style. And then we started to make it in our area. So I don't know if that's what you asked or not. That is, that is 100% a great answer, Sensei. Yeah. Um, and good information for people to know. Um, since so, you know, I know you opened a dojo, closed the dojo, then you're in the third generation of uh, JMAC. You're in, we're in JMAC Gen three. Um, you know, it's often easier to not start a dojo and just train on your own. So, w- what is the philosophy for JMAC, and why did you start that, and what did you hope it would be like, and is it achieving that? Uh, uh, a lot of questions. Well, I started my first dojo, Itama, up in Lansing, Michigan. Um, because when I came back from Japan, I had trained at other dojos 
And I just couldn't find anything that gave me the same sense of quality and the same cultural experience that I had when I was training in dojos in Japan. So I figured I might not be as good as my teachers over there, but at least I could do my best to get close. So it wasn't that I was looking to run a dojo initially. Um, I just wanted the best possible experience I could get. And the only way I could find it after looking around for, can't remember, a couple of years after I got back from Tokyo, um, the only way I could figure out to do it was to create my own. Um, that went okay, but the first dojo I made, um, uh, first of all, the town I don't think at that time was very good for it. And second of all, I had no idea how to run a business. Um, I ran Itama for 10 years and sold it to some of my students and they did okay for a while. But uh, uh, that was like, you know, uh, Master Grogan, you mentioned uh, martial arts being like college. Um, for me, running my first dojo was like getting a bachelor's degree in business as well. I just had no idea what I was doing. And so then I took a little bit of time off, uh, moved down here to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and um, decided to start a dojo down here. And uh, it was a totally different, I it was a totally different experience. The town is more affluent. Um, I was more resolved to make sure that I didn't lose money doing it. Um, and I had learned so many lessons. So I just basically took about half of what I was doing in Lansing and, and used that as a what not to do list. And um, uh, whereas in Lansing, um, I was barely breaking even after three years. I, on day one, when I opened JMAC, I was breaking even and, uh, and, you know, not making, not becoming a millionaire, but at least turning a profit, uh, inside the first year. Um, and except for some really hard times, like, uh, the economic slump in 2008 and the COVID bubble, uh, we've always, we've, all, we've, we've never lost, you know, money in a, in a, in a consecutive months. So knock on wood, that continues, um, uh, we're still trying to grow. We've got a lot of opportunity I want to do, but the main reason I started the original dojo and JMAC was, uh, to have the best possible training experience I could get as much like what I was doing in Japan. Uh, and, uh, round two meant not losing money while you do it. <laughs> Amazing. You know, the only thing I would chip in here is in here. One thing I learned is that, uh, having transactional based dojos are not, they don't thrive and people don't love the training in transactional based dojos. So if it's, I'm paying you money and I have an expectation that you're going to give me a belt or you're going to, I try and not have that here. I try and have it be, we have a good community. We have people who like each other. The parents like the kids The we like the parents that bring the kids here. And it just seems to thrive better that way. I also try and not make it about belts in here. So I, well, the belts, it's good to reward somebody who worked hard, but they have to meet the standard. And I would rather they love the training than train for a belt or a trophy. So in here, that's that's what I think a distinguishing difference of my dojo is in this community compared to some of the other dojos around in this community. Um, that's yeah. a great question. Before we go too far, I just, I, I want to mention that um, Daniel J. Holland III is listening to this call. He's one of my most senior students. He's a He's, he's, he's one of the top instructors at my current dojo. And he took over Itama from me in Lansing for a while. And um, like I did, struggled. I think that's a tough place to run a dojo, although we have a good friend who's doing well there. Um, but uh, Holland Sensei was uh, either wise enough or I I uh, badgered him long enough that he finally decided to give up that dojo in Lansing and move down to Ann Arbor. And um, I think he's been a lot happier. I certainly been a lot happier since he's been down here with us. Amazing. I'm happy that he's back there too. And I'm happy that you, you sprung him out of there. It's much, 
easier for me to see him in Ann Arbor than going up to East Lansing. I promised him lots of suffering in the dojo and uh, and uh, uh, untold fortunes, and only the first one came true. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, um, I want to welcome everybody once again to Punch, Kick, Choke, Chat. We're here with uh, Master Adam Grogan, and I'm also here with uh, Hunchy Gary Legacy and St. Nicholas Suino, since Suino is an eighth dan in Bukso Jigidin Ishinryu Iaido and a sixth dan in Judo, and also, as Adam said, dabbles in many other arts, and when I say dabble, at a really high level for a long time. Um Legacy Sensei is a 10th and in Shoranru Karate as well in Matsumura Hakutsuru. And I just want to say the relationship that I have with these two people, it's just, it's the greatest blessing. One of the greatest blessings of my life is to have this relationship with them. Um, in relation to Hanchi Legacy, I always say that we might have one of the greatest sensei student relationships. I'll be bold enough to say of all time through history of all time. Um, it's an amazing thing. I wish other people could experience it. Um, but if you can't too bad for you. And now I am going to introduce, uh, master Adam Grogan. I'm really excited to have him here. Sensei Grogan, he's a lifetime martial artist. He resides as we talked about in Albany, New York. Um, on his website, he describes himself as a student, instructor, competitor, world champion, world record holder, actor, promoter, founder, producer, and ambassador. There's just a few of the roles that he has honors and privileges being in. And really, when you say that, it's lots of people love doing martial arts on the floor. And a bunch of us on the call, including Master Grogan, like all the other elements of it too, not just the on the floor. Of course, the on the floor is important, but the other stuff is too. Uh, so Sensei Grogan, he began his martial arts journey in 1987. And that was after he saw the movie, The Karate Kid. He saw The Karate Kid and that's what brought him into martial arts. And his first birthday party was a karate birthday party. The first birthday party he had after that was a karate birthday party. Um, he is currently ranked as a sixth N. Uh, and then it was in 1992 that he started training in Taekwondo under Master Yoon Bok Lee and Master Tae Yoon. Um, in addition to Taekwondo, he's interested or has trained and received rank in other arts like Hapkido, Wushu, Capoeira, which I'm extremely interested in. That's a very interesting art. Extreme martial arts and competitive breaking. Um, Sensei Grogan, Grogan has competed in forms, weapons, and sparring, in karate, taekwondo, and most recently, in power breaking. Um, if you haven't seen him break stuff, we have. It's it's crazy. Um, I have a lot of questions for you, uh, Sensei Grogan, about this. Um, he's won many awards and honors. One notably, uh, in 2019, he holds the world record for the most boards broken with a spinning back kick in 15 seconds. And... I'm not sure what that world record is, but a spinning back kick is a good one. I like that one to have a world record in. Um, in 1996 is when he started uh, teaching and it referenced on his website that that's now his biggest passion is teaching and coaching and passing this on. Um, and besides teaching in the dojang, he also teaches seminars at large conventions, such as uh, World Kabuto, the World Convention, 
Capital Conquest. This is where we crossed paths with uh, Sensei Grogan and became friends. Um, uh, Saratoga Martial Arts Festival and many, many other festivals and, and events he goes and teaches at. Um, Master Grogan opened Pai Sung Martial Arts in Albany, New York in 2005. He opened the Dojang with the mission to change the way the capital region looked at martial arts. And we just delved into that. Um, my thoughts. He's really passionate about all things martial arts. Um, you know, Jesse Ehrenkamp calls himself the uh, karate nerd. And I'm going to say that, you know, Master Grogan is the martial arts nerd. He likes everything about it. Taking photos of other martial artists, reading books, watching movies, being in movies, promoting events. Um, he has very broad interests, but they all are surrounding uh, martial arts. If you saw our Punch Kick Joke chat photos that we use, Master Grogan was the one who took those photos for us, and they're excellent. We love them. After he took those photos, many Facebook profile pictures changed uh, <laughs> in the community True. after that capital conquest. Um, uh, I, again, I mentioned this before we were on the air, but I want to thank him because he promoted the shit out of this podcast. He did an excellent job, and thank you so much. If all of our guests did that, it would be much easier for us, and we appreciate your help with that. Um, one of the last things I want to say is you can judge a person by the company that they keep, or you can say you are the sum of your five closest friends. Um, Sensei Grogan has really good friends. Um Many friends that we all know and are friends with us, people like Sensei Rudy Duquette and strength and conditioning coach Greg Pollock, they call themselves the three amigos. They've been traveling and doing stuff together. I love seeing those three together and their friendship that they've developed. He's also friends with the champ, Johnny Terrio. He's friends with Hanchi Sai. He's friends with Hanchi Terrian. That's just naming a few people that we're all friends with too. So he's in good company. These people would not like him and embrace him. If, you know, that was that he was not a good person and a good quality martial artist. So how you doing tonight, uh, Master Grogan? Uh, how are things going in Albany, New York? Things are great. Things are busy, but good busy. And I'm just honored to be here. So thank you so much. Okay. You're very welcome. And I want to jump into a question right away because you hold the distinction of being the first person that we've had on here that is so into breaking right? Like we've had lots of martial artists who've done it. Like, you know, I've broken a piece of wood before, but I would not say that I'm, I know how to do it. it with me, it was more gimmicky. And I know when you do it, it's not, it's not gimmicky. Sensei Legacy has seen people and tell stories about people breaking things like huge slabs of ice that were all melted on the inside <laughs> and you know, all kinds of things like that. So my question to you about the breaking is, Right off the hop, how do you train for something like that? What is your methodology for training to get yourself to that level to be able to put your elbow through cinder blocks or your fist through uh, legitimate pieces of wood? What do you do? So there is a lot of mental training. There's a lot of physical training. There is, I guess I have to contrast it to get, you, to get all of our listeners to kind of realize most Taekwondo schools kids break a board for a test or a promotion you see it sometimes in other styles as well demonstrations you see people do it growing up i only got the instruction break through the board strike through it focus your technique's good you'll be fine 
I think that's the Taekwondo world for color belts and probably the things that you've experienced in the, in the, in the Japanese style world is focus. If you give a single board to a good martial artist, tell them to focus and they have a good technique, a single board is no problem. I was lucky enough a few years ago, many years ago now, time flies, to meet the right people to teach me about breaking. And there's the physical side and the mental side. It's not all chi or chi energy, but it's a lot of that. And a lot of people either think it's all that or a lot of people think it's none of that. There's also a ton of physical conditioning where besides having the strength and the speed, your body has to be resilient enough that when you hit the material, you don't get hurt. The training for the conditioning is boring as heck. It's super boring. It's super monotonous. And most people want to put in the time. And that's where you can kind of really see the difference between a seasoned breaker and a not seasoned breaker is if they walk away unscathed or uninjured versus walking away injured shows that resilience there. There's also an extreme amount of physics and biomechanics that nobody realizes to do those big breaks. And I think that's partly why I'm successful is I've always had an engineering kind of mind and I can kind of see the physics aspects. So it's a balance of, yes, you definitely need the mental, the focus, the key, the meditation to bring to it. You need the resilience of your body being strong enough. And then you need the proper technique, which comes to the biomechanics. So for me, when I'm in training to do it right, I'm balancing all of that meditation, conditioning my body, which is boring, but doing it and then working on the proper technique with the biomechanics and the analysis. So, so when you have a big event, um, Master Grogan, what's a training camp look like for you? You start when, and what does a typical training session look like for you? And does it ramp up or does it teach? Like, just, I'm curious about it. Like, I mean, I've, I've worked with Sensei Legacy to get ready um, <clears throat> for fights. And I know what those types of camps and things, I don't think most people know what you have to do to go to a world level event and do breaking and what the training looks like for that. Even outside of practicing breaking, like, are you doing push-ups? Are you lifting weights? Are you running miles? Do you change your diet? Like, what do you do? <clears throat> so if I'm really training, yes, it's diet. Yes, it's cardio. Because even though you're not moving and you're just standing there, you're just breaking, all of that focusing and releasing of energy, I could be out of breath without leaving my spot. Just from the extreme amount of breathing and focus and exertion of energy. And sometimes you just do it multiple times. So yes, diet, absolutely. Yes, cardio, absolutely. Yes, weightlifting, absolutely, because strength. I have myself, I try to create apparatuses that allow me to do kind of resistance training in the motions of my techniques that a normal machine might not do. So what I mean for that is if I'm doing a downward strike, I'll take a resistance band and strap it to the ceiling and I'll hold it and I'll work on strikes where I have resistance holding my strike upward. Or I could use, um, what do you call the pulley machines, like for a lat pull down or something, but I'll put the rope with the ball on there so I can work the weights and I try to do it that way. When I do my techniques that involve my body to twist, I'll take the resistance bands, strap it to my elbow wall behind me get the bag and i'll work so that i can get that resistance on my torso and the oblique muscles to work on the twisting i'm big on the wood chopping motion so the wood chopping motion is a huge core that we use in a lot of our breaking 
I can't take credit for that. One of the greatest breakers out there that I, I'm friends with gave me that recommendation. So I did was, and I don't always have wood to chop. I have a telephone pole chunk in my school with a tire on it. I'll weigh that down weights and get a sledgehammer and I'll hit the tire on the pole because I don't have room for a whole tire in my studio. And I'll do that for the abdominal muscles because a lot of my downward strikes that you see, there's three dimensional movements and directions that I'm coming down for the strike. And one of them is 100% my abs and coming down that way. So I'll do the, the sledgehammer on that guy as well. A lot of that training is nonstop conditioning. Conditioning is striking a hard surface enough that I feel it, but not enough that it hurts me. What I found out and learned through all this training is there's a thing called Wolf's Law. Is anybody familiar with Wolf's Law? Wolf's Law says that if you put stress on a bone, it's specific to bones, if you put stress on a bone, that over time, evolution, mini evolution, we're not evolving completely, that bone will become denser and harder to protect the body because it knows there's constant stress there. You can also think of it kind of when you break your bone, that joining of the bone and healing has extra calcium. It kind of goes back a little stronger. So what happens is if I'm going to do my elbow is my most popular strike for downward concrete breaking, I'll hit that on all kinds of surfaces. I mix it up. Sometimes I take a puzzle mat, a puzzle mat cut to the size of a brick on top of a piece of concrete. When I hit it, it's still hard. It's not soft like a puzzle mat is, but it's not as soft as a pad that we strike normally. So my body is getting shocked. Sometimes I'll get rid of that pad and I'll put a piece of newspaper on there, like a, a, like a, a whole newspaper folded up. It's softer than the concrete, but still hard. Sometimes I'll just hit the concrete block. Different strikes, I get iron pellets, different things kind of, you know, there's iron palm training and all that stuff, but I'm shocking that part of my body. Every time I shock it every day, a thousand times, not making it hurt, not damaging it, over time, that bone is getting stronger and denser. So when I go to break, I don't injure myself. And sometimes I end up getting like a, I don't know if I can see the difference here. I get a lump and it's like, it's bone density, it's calcium, and it's, it's making myself stronger to do that. I recently learned, and I'm embarrassed I didn't do it sooner, there's a similar law, and I'm not going to say the name because I don't remember it exactly, that the same thing can happen with your ligaments and your soft tissues, that when you're constantly doing repetition on them, they will get stronger, which is why as martial artists, when we punch things like pads and bags, the more experience we have, the stronger our body gets with doing that. It's that repetition. Same thing for breaking. I have some old pads. They're not soft anymore. They're hard. I give those to my students. They start hitting those. That's stage one before they move to hitting stuff. I'm also lucky my dojong, my Korean martial arts school dojong, has brick walls, cinder block walls. So I can go up and just strike that wall or put a thin old garbagey pad on the wall and strike that. And that's my conditioning. I also do a lot of actual technique tech uh, practice where I'll set up pads like my break in front of a mirror. And I'm looking at body alignment. I'm looking at the striking angle because vectors are very big in breaking. And I try to explain it to some people, but if they don't have a physics mind, it doesn't make sense. But in my humble opinion, you know, power coming down with one vector means all that power is going in one place. But if you start coming at an angle, just kind of like with boat navigation, different things, you have different vectors, you're losing power deflected in different directions. If I need to go straight through a stack, 
I need to make sure my strike is straight and not have any kind of other vectors in it. So I'm constantly analyzing that kind of stuff. And then I break. I don't break too much because it's expensive, honestly. Boards don't grow on trees. Sorry. It, you get the dad jokes, right? But mm -hmm. ever, ever since <laughs> COVID, ever since COVID, thank you for laughing at that. Material <laughs> on boards and bricks is skyrocketed and it stinks. Rebreakable boards, they suck. They're okay to practice with, but they're not good. I prefer just hit pads for a week straight, once a week, once every other week, hit a stack of material. Hitting a stack of material, a modest stack, is also conditioning my body. It's shocking that body. I'm big into ditjows, which is the Chinese liniment that is often incorporated with iron palm training and that stuff just to help the healing process of those parts of my bodies as well. So there's a little bit for you. Yeah, I'm, I, uh, I, I want you to know, I'm going to apologize in advance, uh, Sensei Grogan, if I, <clears throat> I'm curious, I don't want the whole show to be about breaking. Like I okay. we want to delve into you as well. Um, but I'm just curious. So you already answered the one question about is it's, it's expensive. Um, and then after I ask this question, Sensei Lacey or Sensei Suino, if you have questions, I'll pause for a second and you guys can jump in there. Standard question, but um, the standard question, we'll get to it. Are there, you know, in, in today, I'm sure you experienced it where you want to keep certain things secret, right? Like you don't want your competitors to know you know, oh, he's a good, he's a good side kicker. He's got a good roundhouse kick. His reverse punch is unstoppable. So you kind of keep that, those training elements secret. Is this an open book in breaking or do you have training elements that you keep secret? Um, and you don't have to tell us the secrets unless you want to. <laughs> so to your first point about not wanting to make this all about breaking, there's more to me as a martial artist than breaking. But I realize that that's what I've kind of become known for a lot now. And I am, like all my passion, passionate about spreading the word and changing the stigma. Because everywhere I go, and they're like, you're the breaking guy. Everybody's got a breaking guy story that's not good. Yeah, we used to do breaking back at our school until Big Jim hit a stack and it flew and hit somebody in the face and we got sued. Everybody's got a bad breaking story from like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And now they don't do it anymore. And I'm all about changing that stigma because everything I do and the people I hang out with are about safety first, not being stupid, not just having Big Jim go up and smash stuff because he's Big Jim and there's no skill to it. It's very important to me. So I'm happy to talk a lot about breaking because I definitely want to grow the understanding. And I, right now, if you look at any video I have online, including the one that went to ESPN and went viral, everybody and their uncle can tell you that it's fake. If you break one, you break them all, try it without the spacers, all kinds of those comments. And it's all those trolls that live in their parents' basement, but it still, it hurts a little bit when it's real. So I'm out to show the stigma of changing that. And also that's why I like sometimes where if I have a good break, but it's not hundred percent, I always post it. I had a great break at Capital Conquest and I missed one. I don't hide that. I'm not ashamed of that. Because all those trolls that say, if you break one, you break it all. When they post that, they don't realize they're contradicting themselves because I didn't break them all. So obviously that's not true. So it shows that it's real. So that's that. Now, what was the question that you had asked for that? You asked me a question. I, I gave the pre thing. What was yes. the question? Are there, are there competitive oh, training? Yes. yes. That you Unlike other things, 
Most of the breaking community is all about helping each other. We all want to see each other grow. I've watched, I've been involved with the competitive breaking community for about 15, 16 years now. And the competition records and world records that existed then, a lot of them have all grown. Because like every sport, like the home run guys in baseball and all that, you always have the escalation. Everybody, for the most part, I don't want to say everybody, most, want to help each other. They all want to succeed. Because there's nothing that gets you pumped more than when the guy before you does good. And then you need to try to beat him in a good way. And the best breaks I've ever had, I didn't go into that event planning to do them. I was forced to add more material to beat the person that already set the number. So we all grow by helping each other. I, like I just said, want to change the stigma of breaking. And I want to help people. I want there to be less injury. So I share all my secrets. And I'm not worried about the competition. I don't compete anymore really that much. So I don't care that way. But also, I told you, it's monotonous. It's boring. And it takes time. So a lot of times I share my secrets, but people aren't willing to put the work in. So nobody's getting to that level because now they've heard it and they're like, oh, that's not easy. I'm not going to do that. That's expensive. It's painful. I found very few people that take the advice I give them and turned it into a successful competitive career besides my own students and stuff. So I don't mind sharing it all. It's it's a lot of work. And a lot of people, unfortunately, these days don't want to put that work in. If that they do, true. I want to help them and I want to coach them. Perfect. I, you know, it's I'm happy to hear uh master grogan that it's it is the way it appears right because mm -hmm. i always looked at the breaking community the people always seem to big camaraderie go have beer after um and it reminds me a lot of like a powerlifting contest where when somebody gets a huge lift everybody's really excited for them when they get a personal best or yes. or cr the crossfit community where when they get that personal thing the whole gym is like it always reminded me of that so i'm really happy to hear that that's what it actually is like yeah, um, great analogy. That's exactly it. Yeah. Uh, before I ask the next question, Setsuna, do you have any questions you want to jump in there on? Um, yeah, a um, couple of things. I um, I love what you said about sharing the knowledge uh, in the in the world of business. I came up with this quote a few years ago. Many people see the mountain, but few do what it takes to reach the summit. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a business mentor a few years back who just said, listen, share everything. Mm -hmm. Almost nobody will take the time to figure it out or to do it if they do figure it out. So that was one. I don't know if I would do that if I were a fighter, but um, mm -hmm. I think you get the point. Um, I got I got two questions. One I think is a little shorter. One might be a bit longer. One is, what about muscle mass versus strength through like speed and efficiency? You talked about vectors, which I absolutely love. Um, how important is how important is muscle mass? Do you lift muscle mass as part of your breaking training? So I did lift for muscle mass. When I got into competitive breaking, there's two divisions of competitive breaking, lightweight and heavyweight. Heavyweight, 200 pounds and over. Lightweight, 199 and under. I was a lightweight. Growing up, I was very skinny. I was probably in my 160s when I started getting competitive, which means that somebody in my division could have 39 pounds, 30 to 40 pounds on top of me. I do truly believe I told you it's physics. So E equals MC squared, Einstein, you know, mass is, but it's double the speed and you get more energy, but it's not exact. I, I have to have a real physicist explain that, but I don't think it's exact, but speed is important. 
You have to have speed, but you do have to have mass also. So I definitely trained for the mass because I had the speed. I was a lighter guy. I was fast. I did try to add mass, but I can tell you that the best breakers in the world I've seen and the best breaks have not been the biggest guys or the heaviest guys in those divisions. In the heavyweight division, there's guys that can go up to 300, 350, but it's the guys in the two to 220 that have the speed over the heavier guys that are doing the better breaks. And there's been guys in the lightweight division that have records higher than the heavyweight division. So you do have to have mass. You do have to have strength, but you do have to have speed. And you have to have the balance of all of them. So it's really going to be the right balance. But you, you can't be so big and muscle-bound that you have no flexibility for that movement because we know that loose muscles move faster than stiff muscles, right? So you got to still kind of have that balance in there. Me personally, I had the speed, so I tried to do the mass training to compensate for that lacking. Yeah, that's a that's interesting it's an interesting equation, right? Cause I suppose there's three, three parts to it. And you can, you can, you can tweak them. Um, Hanchi legacy and, and Randy will remember my friend, John Spears, who was an army kickboxer and he and I lifted weights together and we were lifting massive amounts of, you know, we were doing these sick bench presses and squats and our, you know, punches just seemed like they were so solid at the time. I think I'm a better striker technically now, but uh, not as big a human being. Um, interesting formula um okay question number two um um is about that idea that you talked about about kind of like training more and breaking less you know gsp at one time said people fight too much and they they train too little um right because fighting actually you get hurt maybe you're not learning you know he said you got to drill more you know so he um and i know a lot of really good fighters who say the same thing i know in the shooting sports um uh dry firing you know, is really important because you learn trigger control, your sights and triggers, sights and triggers. Um, um, and a lot of people I know in the shooting sports do really, really well. And they use almost no live rounds, A, because it's cheaper, same thing you said, <laughs> and B, because it's a more efficient way to train. So do you do any other activities other than breaking where you apply that same kind of thought, more training, less doing? Um, uh, or what do you think of the concept? I definitely agree with the concept. In my world, I I love sparring, don't get me wrong, in my style, but I don't do it as much, um, just kind of where we're at as a school now. And even in my prime of sparring, I was never as into or passionate as I am with breaking. When I was a teenager, I was big into Olympic Taekwondo sparring. We were an Olympic school. It was, it was in the 1990s when Taekwondo was about to become an Olympic sport, and we all knew it, and we were all getting ready for it. And I did, as a teenager, I probably was ridiculous back then, and we'd fight every day nonstop. But in my more adult times that I've had better mental plans and preparation and training, I think that's mainly applied to breaking, but I full-heartedly agree with it. I just am not involved with a lot of other things that I can apply it to. Fair enough. I, since, you know, I'd like to hear uh, since Legacy's answer to that question. More training, like, or more doing the thing? What is your, like... More fighting or more training to fight or a balance of it? What is your opinion on that, Sensei? Um, I'm sort of split between both of them. You, you need to do both, right? Yeah. But um, if you're going to be a hockey player, you got to skate. If you're going to be a fighter, you got to fight. I have that 
philosophy. Because uh, um, how am I going to beat uh, some 220-pound guy? It's by fighting and learning the ins and outs of fighting, you know, as opposed to um, if you can knock somebody out, all you need to do then is to learn to be able to deliver. So I would say fight. If you want to learn how to fight, fight. If you want to learn how to run, run. But doing other things will make you stronger and will help everything that you do. Let me ask all three of you a slightly different question then, because um, I, I lean more for like, I liked fighting a lot. I still like to fight a lot. I still enjoy, like person's good at watch what they do. Right. So uh, I like to fight. Like when people come in here, I like fighting. Um, when I go to BJJ, my favorite thing is when we're done drilling and we get to set the timer and start fighting. I like that. I guess the question that I would ask to change the question just slightly for all three of you is, is there a point in your martial arts journey where if we're talking about fighting, it could be breaking, it could be randery, where training becomes, um, I don't want to say sufficient, I don't want to downplay it, where you can change the tables. Like I think in the beginning, you have to fight and do these things. Then after you're really good at it, maybe you don't, you just have to keep your blade sharp. What is your thinking on that? Like, do you think there's a time when it could tip over to the other side where, because let's say you'd still kick the crap out of most of the people since I like see, right? And you're not in there banging it out every single week. So I'll ask you that question first, Sensei, because you were talking last. Well, again, it depends. Uh, you can't just say um, you have to face people, right? So what is it for? Is it like facing Jaive Terrio or is it just being in the street and somebody attacks you or what? If, uh, of course, if um, I was going to fight Jaive Terrio and I heard he did 2,000 punches, I would do three. Like that. That's the only way you can overcome somebody else. But to be a sufficient fighter, you don't have to go to those extremes, in my opinion. Right. Uh, even, even though I'm the age I am now, I, I could still fight, but I couldn't. I could probably get in and, and fight um, the top MMA guy right now. I maybe never could, but even less now, right? Thank you, Sensei. Yeah. Uh, Sensei Suino, what do you think about that? Is there a tipping point where it's like, okay, you have to fight at this point, and then now it's less important? <laughs> well, it's less important. Um, uh, as I was alluding to earlier, I think my technical understanding of the martial arts is way deeper than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. At the same time, I'm not the judo player I was either um, because of arthritis and, you know, you know, compound joint damage over many years. I have to really moderate what I do. Um, and, and yet, if I'm feeling really good one night and I've had some Motrin, you know, I can go out and, and, and dally with most of the guys in my dojo. Um, the top echelon of our black belts can probably beat me, but they have too much respect to embarrass me in front of the rest of the dojo. Um, but 
when we one of the things that uh, that BJJ is saving for me as I get older, right, is it's less impactful on the joints. There's no risk of falling, um, and I can play much closer to full out. Although that full out game is not about muscle, right? It's not about dominating people with strength. It's about skill. Um, uh, uh, and so for me, that's such a tough question because in judo, I think I'm technically good enough that. Um, I can continue to grow and get better at judo mentally um, and un and theoretically, but I can't fight at the level that I used to. In BJJ, I think I still have room to get better. Um, and but I have to fight to do it. I have to I have to I have to train the the small parts of the of the movements. You know the DNA of G BJJ. I got to train the techniques. I got to drill them, and I got to fight. I'm just at that stage. I'm not good enough yet to be. I think where I am in judo, where I can get better without fighting as much boy that was a that was a missed messed up answer keep in mind i'm really salty about not being able to fight as hard as i used to <laughs> yeah but i think you summed it up well when you said i can get better without having to fight as much mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so what's your take on that uh master grogan it's a tough one i think that first of all my my, my generic word answer is going to be balance everything is about balance right and I think that the correct balance of doing or drilling the doing is going to be different for everything. We've talked about breaking. We talked about fighting. They're two different things. And while we have the same principles and philosophies, where the right balance is, is going to be different for fighting or breaking or shooting, he mentioned, or anything else we come up with. It's going to be different. I, as everybody's talking, my mind is, is running and I see fighting as a bell curve, this little abstract here. Beginners, my white belts, my yellow belts, they're not going to get anything if I just had them spar right away, right? Fight right away. They need the drills first. So it's the bell curve. It's more drilling to get ready. And then they start rising, having the balance of the drills with the doing. Then I think you hit a point where it's just tons of doing. I've taught you all the drills. Now the balance tips to more the doing. And then as you get past that hump of that bell curve, it could be more now working your drills and stuff to have that experience. But then I, I think that the bell curve eventually needs to change because at my point in my career now, I really need like a 50-50. I need to practice my drills to stay sharp without an opponent when I can focus on my body and my mind as I get older too. But I really need to do it also to get it. So I, I think that there's a maybe not a bell curve, but like a some kind of shape that the beginners need the balance, the balance tips, and it goes back. But I think it's all about the balance in each. I think that age, rank, and the activity all change that balancing and skipping of the scale to all of us that have different things because we're, we're all different and we're all different stages of health and our life and our training. And that the correct balance of doing and drilling is going to be different on activity, age, rank. Yeah, you went where my mind was thinking. It's also the individual too, right? Some individuals are just like freaks. Like I remember Max Holloway, I think, you know, he's in, if you don't know who Max Holloway is, he's one of the most prolific strikers in UFC history. Like he's just crazy. And he came out and decimated. I can't, can't remember who it was, but he just destroyed the guy. And when they asked him what his training camp was like, he said, I never sparred even one time. I never even sparred one time. And they said, well, why is that? He said, because 
for 15, 17 years, I sparred every single day and I know how to spar now. I don't need to spar to get ready for, for this fight. I already know how I need to be in good condition and I need to not get hurt. And then I can go in there and take all my experience, but I don't think everybody's Max Holloway. I want to, I want to say that. Um, <clears throat> so listen, Master Growing, we, we glazed over a question that we ask everybody. And I'd like to get back to that question. Um, the question that we always ask everybody is, and we kind of know a little bit about it already. When did you start martial arts? Why did you start martial arts? Like what brought you into your first dojo? Who was there? And what kept you there for all these years? Why are you still here doing it? Like Everything I'm about to tell you, I think has become a created story because I was too young to remember. So my parents <laughs> probably told me, and then I started telling people, and it just keeps going. And it's the best I remember. I saw the movie Karate Kid is what they told me. I was five or six years old. It was in the 80s. Next thing you know, my sixth birthday was a karate birthday party. I started karate right then and there. I um, was there about two years. And then my family moved from uh, New Jersey to New York. When we moved to New York, I looked for a school to continue in, karate. Couldn't really find one in the area at that time, in the, in the suburb I was in, which is... Now that first time I'm telling the story, completely contradictive of the first statement I told you guys that my area is saturated with martial arts. So why did my parents not find one of those saturated martial arts schools? I don't know. Um, but then we ended up finding a Taekwondo school that just opened. And we it was in my suburb. Maybe that was wise. Maybe my suburb didn't have the other schools. And we started Taekwondo. And that's how I, I switched to Taekwondo was that change there. What kept me? I'm too young to know. And at this point, as much as I can remember back, it's just who I am. I often tell people I don't do martial arts. I'm a martial artist. I made a sign at my school. I realized what kind of separates me than some of my more business-like schools in my area is that I say I don't teach martial arts at my school. I create martial artists. Now, not everybody that comes in here is going to be a lifelong martial artist. They might just do it for a little bit. But I like to have the mentality that what I do is a lifelong journey. What I do is something you become. What I am is something I become. It extends to all aspects of my life. So I don't know why I stuck with it. I don't know why it was so important to me when I was younger. But somewhere along the way, it became who I am and how I identified. And there was no going back. Love that. Sensei Legacy, you haven't had a chance to ask any questions. And if you don't have one, that's okay. But I just want to open the door for you if you... If you do have a question that you want to ask. I just sort of wanted to, uh, I did have uh, a question about the breaking, but we'd be going back. Let's go back. Okay. Let's go back. So um, would breaking be a bit like a magician in the sense that um, it's it has a lot of technique? And for instance, um, if you put all the boards together, you can break the bottom board. If you put them all with a piece of wood in it, you can't break the bottom board without breaking the top ones. So are there certain tricks to the trade that is just kept silent? Absolutely. And I like to uncover them because <laughs> I want to make real old school martial artists have respect for what we do and what I do. So I don't like when I see the tricks. 
I'm going to tell you some of the tricks right now for that right. reason. Right. First, I'll tell you. So here, here's an obvious one. Now, I should say this. There's a time and place for tricks. The time and place that they definitely don't belong is competition. And I try to change, tra train judges that work for me at events to see the tricks. And I try to encourage competitors to not do the tricks. But if they do it in competition, no. I really don't like seeing the tricks in public, like community demos and stuff, because it, send, it can send a bad message if it gets, everything's online and stuff these days. But sometimes, and I'm gonna give you a great example of a time for the trick I'm about to tell you. So the progression of material that we break, start with boards, then get good at boards, you usually go to concrete would be the next step. The other, there's four most common materials, boards, bricks, baseball bats, coconuts. Some people break flower pots and tile. I don't like it because even when they're successful, the edges are very sharp and they almost always bleed. They almost always get cut. In competition, I got to call the medic over before they even hit it because I know they're going to bleed. And it just doesn't look visually good at a competition or a demo in public if you're bleeding out after you do a break. So I hate tile, I hate ceramic. But boards, bricks, bats, coconuts, all respectful. Coconut is the best bang for the buck. It's $2 at the grocery store and it's the hardest thing to break. So now you got the most prestige compared to stacking up 30 boards at three US dollars each right now, which is a $90 break versus a coconut that's harder to do and it costs you two bucks. So coconuts are like the pinnacle. When you have a coconut, if you put the coconut on the concrete block, you step back, the concrete on the block, you hit that with your hand. That is legitimate. That is good. That is respectable. Not a lot of people can do that. What you often see is somebody holding the coconut. It may give the impression that they're holding it to stabilize it so it doesn't roll off. But if, as they're about to hit it, they lift it just slightly, now when they hit the coconut, the coconut's hitting the block. That is not as respectful. That is not as pure. That's not as good, in my humble opinion. But I told you I'd tell you an okay situation for that. The okay situation for that, in my humble opinion, is in my school, closed doors. I'm teaching you to break. You've built up and you're ready to do a coconut. And it's your first time doing it. It's your first time. And there's a mental capacity that you have to get over, a preparedness. Coconuts are scary. They're hard and they hurt. Even when you're conditioned, they hurt. So in the privacy of my own dojo, if I'm going to teach a student to break a coconut, I'll usually encourage them to do the cheat method first so that they get the feeling because they still, they're hitting the coconut with their hand. They're feeling the hardness of the coconut. They're hitting it hard enough, but it's helping them get the, also the feeling of it cracking. Then when they go to public or a demo, there's no more holding it. But that would be an okay scenario for it. That's one of them that I see often. Um, I also see people take um, long bricks or red bricks and they'll lay it across something and chop it on in the free air where it's not held on both sides. It's kind of laying off the side. They'll do the same thing. They'll hold it. When they come down, they'll do a little lift and hit it and it hits the block. It's cheating. It's not hard. My grandma can do it. It's, it's, it's easy stuff. You don't want to be doing that there. Those are the two biggest tricks I see. I see a lot of other parody stuff 
that's just not hard. Oh, people, I've seen people hold an egg in their hand. They put a raw egg in their hand, they'll break a board and then crack the egg to show they didn't break the board. But if I'm using my knuckles properly and my knuckles are here, there's no reason I should be hitting these knuckles to squeeze my hand. So it's not hard to hold an egg and, and do a, I see people do it with a back fist. Why could I not hold something in my hand I'm breaking with the back of my fist? There's no need to squeeze it. It's there. So those are all cheesy ploys also that I don't like. The laying on a bed of nails, crowds love it. Most people know with physics, it's not hard. You're spreading out the, you're spreading out the body there. But I mean, there's always that little danger of you moving the wrong way on the edge ones and stuff. So, I mean, it's not quite as bad, but I don't love it. Um, the biggest thing I don't like, I'll swing it here. And it's not exactly your question. I'm sorry, but I'll say because I have the opportunity is when people always try to escalate, right? So they're always trying to push and you always have the overcompetitive parent or the overcompetitive coach. And what I've seen in the past 10 years is people introduce these dangerous things to children. And that bothers me. I've seen people pull out the bed of nails for kids. And that really bothers me because I don't care if my kid wins or loses, but I don't want them doing these gimmicks that do have a danger factor if you don't know what you're doing or if they're done wrong, introducing them to children. That bothers me. Or breaking baseball bats. Baseball bats are another great thing to break, but kids' bones are not solidified. They're not fully grown yet. And when you hit your bone on a bat, a kid can damage growth plates and stuff. So I'm really big on safety and winning isn't everything, especially with like under 16, they're still in developmental stage. That's kind of a swing, I'm sorry, but I kind of went there. Oh, good. Um, Master Grogan, it's the time. We're about eight minutes past the time. <clears throat> Everybody gets the same 10 questions. Normally, Sean asks them, and we feverishly write notes. Uh, tonight, because it takes two of us to do the job of what Sean Benson does by himself, Sensisuino and I are going to go back and forth on the questions. So one will come from me, and then the next one will come from uh, Suino Sensei. So the first question, again, we ask everybody these questions. What is the most effective move in your martial arts arsenal? My favorite technique that I feel could be my most devastating, but not appropriate for all situations, is my spin back kick. Spin back kick is my favorite, my most devastating technique. I'd never use it in a self-defense situation. It's not appropriate. But of all my arsenal, that's my kick. Great. Love it. Uh, Kyoshi James Freeze said the same thing. That was his favorite as well. Mr. Grogan, who is the most, who is or was the most influential martial artist in your life? That's a tough one. That is so tough because there's so many. I've been so blessed with so many amazing people all around me. And people really pick one name for you? Uh, no, I, a lot of times they don't. Give me your, give us your impulsive answer and then feel free to elaborate. We talk a lot about breaking. So we're talking about breaking. There's two people that have made me the breaker I am. And that's Grandmaster Ralph Bergamo and Grandmaster Drew Serrano. They are the founders of the World Breaking Association that I am the director of operations for. They created me to be the breaker that I am today and have taught me everything I know about breaking. And I owe it all to them for breaking. If you're talking about Taekwondo, my brother is Master Ilgyu Shin, who was on the Korean National Demonstration Team. And I would not be the Taekwondo practitioner and kicker that I am today 
if he didn't kick the crap out of me my entire childhood, he made me who I am from a Taekwondo world. But then there is so many influences that were not directly based to my curriculum or my own personal growth with, with technique, but that influenced me as a martial artist. I can name 20 to 30 names, names that you mentioned from World Kabuto Federation that have just been such a huge influence. And then from other organizations I'm at that we would have a laundry list. We're all so blessed to be exposed to so many great people by getting out of your school and out of that bubble. I mean, anybody, if you're listening to this, you're probably out of a bubble because there's so many schools that wouldn't even let you get exposure to this here. You know, best thing I ever did was break that bubble. Question number three, Master Krogan. You're going to have a hard time with this one too, I suspect. Uh-oh. Who do you think is the most influential martial artist of all time and why? I'm a big pop culture guy. I grew up on not necessarily the real martial art world, but the pop culture martial art world. I grew up being more familiar with the martial art actors than I were the actual competitors and the leaders in the industry at the time of the 80s and 90s. So I'm going to just go with Bruce Lee because, I mean, how many years? And it's still everything online, every T-shirt, every place you go, you know, that's influential, you know, past. There's not many that have been that far, you know, post-mortem, right, that are still the first name on everybody's tongue and everything there, that we all, we all have one thing in common. We all watched it. We all saw it. We all know it. There's a lot of us that have different people that we looked up to and different martial artists and actors, but I think we all have one in common. Whether you like him or not, you know him. Whether you thought he was legit or not, we all know him. We all watched it, and we all had him be an influence us in some way. So I'm going to have to go with that. Yeah. Sensei Legacy said, uh, Bruce Lee, and when I traveled to Japan the last time with Sensei Suino, I watched Enter the Dragon on the plane while I was, yep. while I was going. And if uh, <clears throat> Sean Benson was here, you might get some DMs from him because – he likes Bruce Lee, but he likes to incite their fans by trash talking, trash talking Bruce Lee in comments so that they start freaking out. He gets enjoyment out of that. <laughs> I'll throw this in. So I'm, I'm I'm an 80s, 90s kid, right? So I love all my 80s, 90s movies. 1990s Dragon the Bruce Lee story. I dare, please, everybody might get mad at me. That actor, Jason Scott Lee's rendition or depiction of Bruce Lee sometimes resonates with me more than Bruce Lee himself. I think I fell in love with that character and that character's depiction of Bruce Lee more and before I did the actual Bruce Lee. And that has a bigger connection with me with that fictional depiction than the actual man himself. Love it. I love that movie too. Great movie. Suino, you are up. I think this is the fifth question. Uh, it's uh, a fourth question. question. What excites you most about the next five years of your training? I feel like I'm on an upward motion, an upward whatever path. I feel like my martial art, my own personal training is a roller coaster, right? You start as a student. I focused more on my teaching. I then focused more on myself. I opened my schools, all about my students. I then try to become a competitor again or more active myself to, in, to motivate my students. It's, it's always up and down. 
And then I spent a couple of years really focusing on training some great competitors and working with them. And COVID was obviously a lull for all of us. COVID stunk. And, you know, I was a little depressed during COVID because I wasn't teaching people. I hated that. But ever since we got out of COVID, I've been feeling like I'm on a little bit of an upward path, getting in a little better shape where I want to be, making some good decisions. This um, European touring I've been lucky enough to do with the World Kabuto has challenged me to continue to be in better and better shape. You mentioned, I mean, I'm traveling with Rudy Duquette, who is freaking amazing. And I, I want to keep up with him as part of our little, you know, trio and Greg. So I'm, I'm pushing myself harder where sometimes I become a little too relaxed in my own studio. I'm focusing on my students and my own training is not as important because balancing time, there's only so much time, but I'm on an upward path right now. So I'm excited to see where that brings me. Love that. Yeah, Rudy Duquette is definitely an inspiring martial artist, great human being, good martial artist. Um, if heaven exists, what would you like God to say to you when you get there? That I made a difference. That I made a difference with what I did as it relates to martial arts, because I'm a martial artist. That's who I am. That's what I do. So that my influence on the martial art community and what I did for the martial art world was significant enough that it affected others in a positive way. Do you have a favorite, I guess you kind of answered this, but I'd like you to hear more. Do you have a favorite film or TV artist, TV martial artist, even if they're a real martial artist or not? Um, so, like I said, I grew up those movies. And I'll give you my top five or six movies because they just come to me and I've watched them because I can't stop is uh, No Retreat, No Surrender. Best okay. of the best because I'm a Taekwondo guy. Surf Ninjas, Ernie Reyes Jr., legit awesome martial artist. Um, Dragon the Bruce Lee story, like I said. I mean, those were my world for the longest time. And there's probably more that I'm not... Oh, uh, now I can't... Uh, think of the name of the movie but i know bruce leroy what's the uh, movie enter the dragon no bruce leroy um oh um i can't think of it but i know you're talking about what's time max movie i'm embarrassed i can't remember it now um the last dragon the last <laughs> dragon from the 80s remember the uh time was in that and stuff and shona that was oh those those were what i grew up on that's what made my love of martial arts there with all those movies which I mean, there's a lot of legitimate martial artists among all those. Philip Ree from Best of the Best was a very famous Taekwondo guy that helped spread the word. And his brother, Simon, who still are both movie stars and Taekwondo guys, Ernie Reyes and all that. So, I mean, those movies and those actors. Have you found the glow yet? <laughs> I feel sometimes when I break that I'm close. <laughs> because there's a, there's a natural high to that. There's a, an amazing endorphin natural high that comes out of a good break i i believe you i've never done it so i can't relate um the next question for you master grogan is do you have a martial artist living or dead of all time that you wish you could have trained with I'm going to say because my heart is in Taekwondo and I'm a Taekwondo guy, 
General Choi is considered the founder of Taekwondo. He founded ITF Taekwondo. He was alive for a while when I was still training. I just did not have the opportunity. I'm going to say that because that is my lineage and I, I respect the deep lineage of ITF Taekwondo, International Taekwondo Federation, more than the WT, World Taekwondo Federation is the modern Olympic organization that's only rooted back to the 70s, you know. I, I would want to have spent some time with General Choi to understand my style and its roots more deeply from the source. He's buried here in Canada, in Toronto, if you want to go. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Because right, didn't, I remember reading, I read a lot about the politics of Korea and all the stuff with Taekwondo and remember he ended up there and stuff. Yes. Next question. Second to last question. If everyone in the world could have the greatest benefit that you've gotten from martial arts training, whether they train or not, what benefit would you be giving them? Just an entire different way of being a way, an outlook on life. It's so I, we haven't talked about, but it might be worth saying here. So besides being a martial artist, I have a, a day job where I'm um, a leadership in IT in a hospital system. I wouldn't have that job if I wasn't a martial artist. I grew because of my leadership qualities as a martial artist there. I, everything about who I am that comes from martial arts has helped me be successful all around in life and everything you do. So what they'd be getting is, I mean, we know confidence. I mean, it's the laundry list of the advertisement of martial arts that is so true. It's, it's confidence, patience, control, the ability to be conscious of just what's going on around you and take it all in and kind of react to it slowly and not overreact to it. It's all of that. The other thing, if you're a martial art instructor that you'll get that's not good, that my wife hates, is I can only talk in a teaching voice. And she always says, I'm always yelling, but I'm not yelling. <laughs> I just have a teaching voice and I can't turn it off. And at my day job, sometimes they tell me to quiet down a little bit because I'm teaching. I love that. That's how I have a day job too, uh, Master Grogan. And it's the same thing for me at a university. I can actually read a room when somebody wants that. Okay. Who's going to do this? And you can feel everybody nervous about it. And I'm like, yep. I'll do it. I'll do it. Give it to me. I'll go do that thing. <laughs> um, so I can relate to that for sure. So the next two questions come as a pair. Um, what is your greatest achievement and what is your greatest regret? I honestly think that my greatest achievement that I look at is not my own successes, but the successes of my students. I think that uh, two years ago, my female student was preparing for the world championships of breaking. They canceled the female division on her because there wasn't enough competitors. We put her in the male division with no hope. She won the division, became a world champion, and became the first female to ever beat the males in a power-breaking division and win. I think I was more happy having trained her for that and her winning that than I was when I won myself. And I've had multiple situations like that with students that are just 
I, I take a lot of pride in my students. So I think that my students as a whole and their success is my greatest achievement, that I was able to take something I had and pass it along to them and bring them to a level where I was or past me or whatever. That's my greatest achievement. And the other one was the greatest regret. Regret. I guess my error. I can a regret be something that you didn't know any better on? Because I just wish I had gotten involved with some of the other martial arts styles, people, organizations earlier. I mean, had I met the guy that taught me breaking 10 years before, I mean, that I would have been at a whole other level and I missed a whole generation of amazing people that I could have been a part of had I did that, but I didn't know any better. My breaking story is kind of crazy. In the early 2000s, I was a, my early 20s, teenager, I was watching the US Open on ESPN, watching these breakers, thinking they were the most amazing thing in the world. 15 years later, I was one of them. They were my good friends. They taught me. And then 10 years after that, I run that competition now. It's kind of amazing and crazy that you don't really get to do. But I wish I had gotten into it earlier, but I would never know. I, I saw them on TV and thought it was unachievable. I thought it was unreachable. Those are great answers, uh, Master Grogan. I like them all. Uh, but you just said something that, that I actually had a, a question about, and I think we'll probably go around the horn on this question, is you're talking about like you promote this breaking event, you organize it, you're the director of it. Um, you know, your tournament, the Northeast Open, all of us on this call, we all promote different events or work together to promote events. Why do you do it? And what do you, what do you get from it? And what do you think people get from it? I started my first tournament was it's the Northeast Open. Now this is the 18th year I did it because I was angry. I went to a tournament and it was really bad. And I'm like, there has to be better tournaments. And there was no good tournaments in my area. So I started that tournament with the idea of making a better tournament. And I wanted a tournament because there was in my area, there was no multiple discipline tournament, no open tournament. It was only the Taekwondo guys did Taekwondo, the karate guys did karate, and there was nothing for the Chinese stylists, nothing for the Wushu Kung Fu guys. And I wanted, it's my slogan on all my stuff, and it was on my commercials, is I wanted to show people the beauty of all martial arts. The same thing I told you earlier about my school. Have a tournament where I try to bring in lots of different styles. Not every style can compete. There's some awesome styles that don't compete in forms, weapons, sparring, and breaking maybe Hapkido or Aikido. So I used to have them demonstrate because I wanted to get all these martial artists that like martial arts in a room and force different styles down their throat, force them to see stuff and expose them because they don't know what's good for them. So just do it anyway. So that's how I kind of started my first and my biggest tournament. And then it kind of took off. I enjoyed promoting events. I liked the energy in them. I liked the camaraderie and the competition. And we have a really good balance at my events of camaraderie over competition is my slogan. Still a fair event, but it's not about I'm better than you. It's let's do what we love together and challenge each other. And it kind of turned into a circuit where I run a circuit now in my capital region of the of Albany, New York. And we have five, six events a year. Then I brought in the U.S. Breaking Association, the USBAWBA, to my event. I ended up then showing I had some value to them. They brought me into the organization. I worked my way slowly up the ranks there, and I'm the director of operations. And the USBAWBA runs breaking competition around the whole world. Same idea. I just love spreading breaking, I told everybody. I love 
being involved, being in that atmosphere, meeting different martial artists, sharing, but doing what we love, challenging each other. So that's why I love doing that tournament in that series. So I kind of run two circuits. I run the USBA, WBA circuit, and I run my own local circuit. Amazing. Since Serino, you started a great event called the Crucible. We, I'm helping you with it a little bit now. We do the EIDO training camp that's uh, growing. What do you get from these events, you personally, and what do you think the community gets from it? Well, I think what the community gets is a chance to do something really cool um, that hopefully is well run. Uh, I know our Yido event is well run, uh, A, because I see it in action, and B, because a lot of people tell me that. I know the Crucible is well run. We've spent a lot of time fine-tuning that to make sure that it does the right things for people physically and psychologically. Um, uh, so to help people become better martial artists, right, is the short story. Um, they have slightly different purposes, right? Iaido camp is more for introducing a lot of people to Iaido that maybe aren't super familiar with it yet. Uh, but that's changing as more people come to multiple years. Uh, uh, the Crucible is designed to show people that they can do more than they ever thought. It reminds me of breaking in a little bit, right? Somebody would never imagine in the world that they could break something and then they break it. It changes their mindset in permission. I mean, in, uh, in the Crucible, people would never imagine they can do 12 hours of consecutive hours of martial arts training, much less overnight, like we did the last one, uh, but they can, and they come out of it changed. Uh, what I get out of it personally is stretching myself. I think that I have yet to live into my potential in anything and I'm trying to get there. And the challenge of creating these events and, um, uh, you know, organizing them and making them better and working with other people is part of what I am doing now at this stage of my life to try to live into my, my potential. Since Legacy, you, you started a tournament uh, in like 1971 that's still running now, like 52 years later. And we work together on that. We've done big camps together. Like, what do you get from that? And what do you think the community gets from it? Well, what I'll, I'll like go to explain it in a, in a different way. Um, our our uh, tournament is invitational because I didn't want the cheating or the schools that don't, that just show up and they really can't do anything. They need to train harder. So I wanted to uh, expose my students to people that were better than they were so that, you know, the competition brings you, when you're fighting with somebody in a tournament, it's a little bit different than fighting somebody in your dojo. Yes, you're trying to beat the other guy, but you move just a little bit faster. You try just a little bit harder. And, you know, uh, like I've, I've told you this many times too, remember when you used to fight and I used to be there, the other person's trying to, the person from the other club is trying to win for their club. While they're trying to win for themselves, so it brings them on a faster, higher, uh, train a little bit more of a level. And I just wanted to help bring up our competition in a little bit higher level, so that my students benefit for that from that. In 1971, again, you know, we didn't have big tournaments like this. There were only one or two. Most of the big tournaments were in the United States. Except for maybe um, at, um, in Toronto. The karate zone? 
the karate zone and uh, where is it at uh, there's a place there I, I can't I can't remember the name of it. CNE. That's it, the Canadian Nationals. Yeah. That was that's where you saw Wally Slokey and uh Tony Vassetti and Rick Joslin and all those guys fighting guys that had her full attention when they fought. So just to use it again as a tool for my students and myself. I, I was competing back in those days as well. Uh, so I'm going to chip in a little bit. I like these events. I like to be of service to the martial arts community and to people in general. And I think when you do these types of events, you put yourself in a mindset of service because they're really hard. Like it's not, it's not a small amount of work. Like we are three weeks away from our tournament, which will have somewhere probably around 300 competitors, you know, 60 referees, 250 or 300 spectators. Um, that's a lot of emails. That's a lot of getting trophies, getting, there's a lot of work. Like a lot of people show up on the day and they don't actually see the work. I don't mind if they don't see the work. I like seeing them enjoy the result. I like seeing them come. I like seeing people be, as you said, Master Grogan, being exposed to new things. Like seeing the camaraderie and the friendships that, um, develop a you're a prime example you're good friends with with greg and rudy now you guys are the three amigos that all came from being these events together some of my best friends are people that i competed against um and we're lifelong friends now uh i think it does expose you to a, a bigger thing and i like being of service and being a person who can who can bring that uh to the masses um so that's for the community for me, they're like I said, they're hard. And I like like Sensor said, I enjoy the grind. Like I enjoy the having to balance it all. Okay, I gotta balance my family and this event and still get in the dojo and and that whole saying of I'll get enough sleep when I'm dead, right? Because I'm just work isn't work when you're having fun. And I enjoy like developing that resilience. I also get a, a personal sense of satisfaction. When, when since legacy and I work on the Matsumura challenge each year, we add one kind of small new wrinkle that just makes it, it's not a static thing. It's a growing and evolving thing. I get a lot from that. When since Suino and I work on events together, we're always like, okay, this is what we did last time. What do we want to stop doing? What do we want to continue doing? And what do we want to start doing? And there's always something that falls into all of those buckets. So it's never really truly the same event. I get off on that. Like that really gets my energy going and I like it. Um, we are getting near the end, uh, Master Grogan, but I know Census Fino has one quick question for you. And then what we'll do is we'll go around the horn. I'll do a little bit of housekeeping. And then the last word will go to you before we sign off. So Census Fino, do you want to start with your question? Yeah, I think as I think about this, uh, it's a lead in from what you just described, but um, we probably ought to have a um, short episode or bring... Master Grogan back and talk about this specifically. Um, can you give me five things? Look, you balance a lot of stuff. Martial arts, work, photography. Uh, you know, uh, Hanchi built a huge organization of martial artists while he had, you know, had a full-time job. Uh, uh, I own way too many businesses and, and create events and travel. Randy's doing the same thing. I mean, it's like 
Um, there's a really busy, there's a bunch of really busy people on this call. What would you say are the top three or top five things someone needs to do to be able to balance all those different activities and still lead a fulfilling life? Yeah, prioritize them, which is difficult sometimes. Keeping priorities in line is, is tough. You got to have a routine, in my humble opinion. I'm very routine to what I eat every day, to what time I eat, to where I go, to what I do. I plan things out. I have a routine. Um, you have to have the right things. You can't do it if you don't have the right things. I often get tired and burnt out at my day job. But the second I leave my day job and show up at my school, I feel revived because it's a change of scenery. It's something I love and I want to be there. And then it, it happens again when I go home and stuff. So I think that the 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 elements in your life need to be refreshing changes because the average person leaves work and they go home and relax. And all of us go from work to work to work to work. But if work is something we love, which is that age old saying, then going from one thing you love to another thing you love and change of scenery can keep you energized to keep going. I think that also the key to doing this lifestyle is putting enough weight and consideration on your own physical and mental health, looking at you guys, crazy role models with the 75 stuff. I mean, I think that all that plays into with the discipline to the mind and body in order to be able to work nonstop, even though it's fun, you're working nonstop, you need to be in a good, healthy state. And you can't do that if you're not in that good, healthy state mentally and physically. So I think you got to make time for that. I don't know if we counted them out, but that's that's what I'm coming up with here is 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 that those elements. Yeah, I wrote down, I, I, I got it six, but I, that was just okay. the way I was writing yeah. them down. Awesome. Well, we got to start a wrap up. So I'll hand it over to Randy for a moment. Randy's frozen. Oh, what a time to freeze. I'll start. All right, Sensei. I'll start. Okay. Yeah, start us up. How did you like our call tonight? Yeah, it was great. Thank you very much for coming. You know, you, um, to me, I learned a lot of different things, especially about the breaking side of it. That we did do that at the very beginning, but it wasn't quite like what I saw you do at Capital Conquest. That, that was um, that was something to see. It was the entertainment at its best, so to speak. And uh, the other thing is, I, I know that you're a fine martial artist by talking to you, because you know um, a lot of it comes. From the inside right and uh hopefully we can cross paths again i'd like to see you at the next capital conquest of if nothing else but thank you very much for uh coming to our our show thank you, thank you so much thanks hanchi yeah master grogan man this call just flew by um yeah uh we talked about a lot of stuff uh uh really cool things i guess a couple of highlights for me um just all the specific conditioning that you talked about, the the mind, the body, the thoughts that go into breaking. It's uh, it's nice to have a little window into a real specific field like that, that I haven't really explored much. Um, I love the vectors. You know, I do this, um, I wrote this book called The Flywheel about power generation and how you move. And it's so, that's, that's, that's so key to me with the thing you said about, you know, if you, if you strike in multiple vectors, you're bleeding out right? You're breathing out force or energy in a variety of different directions. And I don't think people give enough, give enough thought to that. Um, 
I did. I just liked everything about today, and I want to. I want to do more. So we'll have another talk. I'll I'll work on Randy to try and get you back for a for a short or a micro session on some specific topics. Um, but to wrap it up, because I'm not sure Randy's going to be back in time, I just want to make sure that we thank the folks that make this show possible. We get to be on the on the video camera and talk to you. But uh, uh, without Robert Chomsky, Andre Sedeshev, Alden Dare, Sydney Dauphin, Justin Shea, Mike Russell, Josh Kitchens, Daniel J. Hall III, Jesse Ville Vitao, Christiana Landolt. Um, None of this would be possible. We would be running around like chickens with their heads cut off uh, even more than we are already. And welcome back, Randy. It's time for you to sum up this call, and then we'll wrap things up. All else has been done. The last word will go to Master Grogan. Thanks, sir. I like to do this, uh, Master Grogan. To I'll get a beating from Sensei Legacy tomorrow when I see him to train, and Sensei Sweeney will kick me around the next time because... I like to stress the out by just pretending I have tech difficulties and falling off the call. Um, <laughs> sadly, Zoom decided to update in the middle of our call, and I should have done that before um, we started the call. So I apologize for that. But I do want to say I really enjoyed the uh, talk tonight, um, Master Grogan. You're a good person. I really have enjoyed our interactions over the, the last four or five years. It's nice to see you. Um, I write down these notes. Um I like that you started your dojo because you wanted to broaden the community and expose people and basically just be the person that you are, which is make friends and not be a martial arts racist, right? Like, no, only this is good. I like that. I liked how you expressed it as a major, a minor and electives. That is a good way to think about it, right? Because I'm a Schroeder major. I'm always going to be, I love Eido. I'm falling in love with BJJ. Um, and then I like when I go to these events and get to do various other things and just dabble in them and understand them. So I agree with that. I like your descri describing Wolf's Law. I've never heard it before, but it makes total sense to me that if you do something controlled, you build up bone density. I think it's true of ligaments as it is with muscles. Um, I really like that. The one thing you said, and I've been thinking about it through the call, it's stayed in my brain, is that your personal bests were when somebody before you, you were never planning to actually add that extra brick or add that extra board, but the person before you did it and you had the attitude of throw next to slab on the pile because I'm going to crush through it. I like that a lot. Um, you also said, I don't do martial arts. I'm a martial artist and I don't teach martial arts. I create martial artists. I really like that. Like that is an excellent statement. Um. I like that you talked so passionately about breaking. I honestly didn't have any knowledge of it other than most of the gimmickry. Like, you know, I've seen like people like yourself and other people who do things, but sadly, because of the gimmickry, you always think everything is a gimmick. I like your goals. And I think we all learned a little bit about it today. And your openness to just say, yeah, there is a bunch of gimmicks and it screws everything up for everybody. And isn't that the same of all martial arts, mm -hmm. right? Isn't that the same of all martial arts? The shysters make us all look bad, right? They cast a shadow on all of us. Um, you know, your spinning back kick, that's a great one. Uh, most influential of all time, Bruce Lee. You're in good company. Most, most of the people have said Bruce Lee. The majority of the people have said Bruce Lee. Um, you know, getting out and teaching, getting better, inspiring others for the next five years, God, 
you made a difference. That's a very good thing. We all hope for that. I like those movies. Everyone you mentioned and the ones that uh, we couldn't remember, like The Last mm-hmm. Dragon, Best of the Best, No Retreat, No Surrender. I remember when Best of the Best came on Netflix and my wife, I was like, Best of the Best is on Netflix. And she's like, I don't know what that is. I'm like, you're going to find out. <laughs> right? like, so um, I like that movie. I like that you're geek out about all martial arts thing. Uh, you brought up General Troy. I think that's very respectful that you mentioned his name and that you would want to train with him. I, I really like that you said that. Um, the leadership qualities that help you in your personal life. Uh, your greatest achievement is being a good teacher and the success of your students. Um, and you said the other one. You, everybody says, greatest regret, I wish I had started sooner. You started really young. You can't even remember. But you said... I wish I had looked at other martial artists sooner, <laughs> right? So thanks so much, Master Grogan, for coming on. It was really enjoyable. I had a really good time tonight and really grateful that you would come on. And the last word, sir, goes to you. Thank you guys all so very much. Um, unfortunately, I think that in the world, you go to lots of martial art events. And if you're at the, I don't want to say you're at the wrong events, but at the least at competitions, you meet more not great martial artists than you do good martial artists. When I got involved with World Kabuto, I started finding there's a lot more good martial artists like me out there. And it's very lucky because locally, you go around different places. There's there's not a lot of, in America and in my area, there's not a lot of guys like you around here. There's a lot of BS. There's a lot of posers. There's a lot of businessmen. And I'm also, I'm not about, you can have business. You can have a school. We're talking about making money at your school. There's a difference between guys that have a school to make money and have guys that make money while doing what they love and teach martial arts. There's a difference between that. I'm just really lucky and consider myself lucky to have gotten involved with World Kabuto where I meet you guys that are awesome like me and more people like us. Anybody that ever listens or sees this, I mean, just get out and meet people because, you know, it's, it's, if you love martial arts, it's great, but it's even better when you share it with others that love it too, that you can have these talks with. I could have talked to you guys for another two, three hours. It'd be too long of a show, but it's awesome. So thank you so very much. Hanshi Legacy, thank you so much for the things you said. Somebody with your experience, that, that just means so much to me, the things that you said there. And Sensei Suino, we have to have another side conversation because the things that you were saying, I can compare and contrast probably everything you do at SWORD to breaking and how it's the exact same and certain aspects of it all apply with your cuts and stuff with the exact same way we do breaking. Be a fun side conversation sometime. But- I'm just so honored to be here. This is a lot of fun, guys. So thank you so much. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks, buddy. Have a great night. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night.